запыленной в связке старых писем. Мне случайно встретилось одно, Где строка, похожая на бисер, Расплылась в лиловое пятно. These are the musical stylings of former Soviet premier Mikhail Gorbachev. Still going strong, even though he's about 90 years old. Um, if you look at the news, you see the headlines about what's happening with Russia and Ukraine. And it is, as Yogi would say, it is getting late early. Uh, there's talks of troops being deployed. There's talks of sanctions. There's talks of invasions. It is not looking good if you want to avoid a conflict. Now, what the scope of that conflict is, whether it involves just Russia and Ukraine or whether it involves Great Britain, United States, and more broadly, NATO, we're going to have to see. Uh, But we've been trying to lay out all the information for you, help you have a more thorough understanding of the Russia-Ukraine situation beyond the narrow, narrow window that you see into what's going on in Eastern Europe on most of the mainstream media. And we've been trying to bring you experts to showcase different aspects of this situation. Now, if there's one problem with our next guest is that he is way too overqualified to be up at 4.30 in the morning talking to me. He is not only the vice president and director of studies at the Center for National Interest. He's not only the author of one of the best books I've ever read on recent Russian-American relations, The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Catastrophe. But he spent more than two decades in government service. He was an intelligence analyst, a diplomat. A policy advisor. He was uh, he's, uh, was uh, director of the CIA's Russia Analysis Unit. He was also a special advisor to Vice President Cheney on Russia. He's got a master's degree. On top of that, he speaks both Russian and German. So clearly, you could tell the one problem with George Beebe is he has no idea what he's talking about. George, it is always great to talk with you. I really appreciate you getting up this early. Well, Frank, thanks for asking. All right. Uh, It is um, really looking uh, quite precarious in in terms of the Syria, uh, the uh, Ukraine situation. And a lot of the scenarios that you seem to caution about in your book, The Russia Trap, seem to be coming to fruition. How do you see things right now? Well, I think it is quite a precarious situation. Um, I think we're headed toward probably the most dangerous and most significant confrontation with the Russians since the Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 between the United States and Soviet Union. So uh, we we have to treat this with with a great deal of seriousness. How do you think President Biden is doing in terms of his handling of the situation, both in terms of action and sort of rhetoric on the world stage? Well, uh, so far, I think we're struggling to figure out how to deal with this problem. Um, And the one thing that I think is most important to the Russians, the one thing that there is that is their bottom line on all of this, which is uh, Ukrainian membership potentially in NATO or uh, NATO being involved militarily in Ukraine, even if Ukraine is not a formal NATO alliance member. That issue is the one thing that we've said we're not going to talk to the Russians about. That's off the table. It's non-negotiable. As long as that's true, I think we're going to be headed toward a disaster in Ukraine. Um, We've 
focused exclusively on trying to punish and deter the Russians from taking any action militarily in Ukraine, which is only part of what needs to be done. We have to couple that firmness with a willingness to accommodate what I think are legitimate Russian concerns about uh, a hostile military alliance on its border in a country that is probably the most important country in the world for Russian security interests, uh, for its uh, economic relationships with Europe and the world, and for its longstanding cultural ties uh, with Ukraine. So we're, we're really playing with fire right now, and we need to, to ask ourselves – why is it that we're insisting that NATO uh, have this robust military relationship with a country on Russia's border? What is the compelling national interest that's driving that? For well, us? well, that's that's been the question that I've been asking. And people on the left, like Katrina Vanden Heuvel, have been asking the question. And people on the right, like Tucker Carlson, have been asking that same question. Uh, let me ask you, what is the rationale for the continued expansion of NATO right up until Russia's borders? And why is it so important to the American interests, uh, foreign policy? or any otherwise, for us to uh, continue to, to not take the issue of Ukraine membership in NATO off the table? Well, um, I don't think the logic is actually very compelling for this. It's rooted in a vision that we had way back in the early 1990s of Europe whole and free. That was the, the buzz phrase that we used. Um, and we wound up with a situation where the United States felt that uh, NATO had to be the security organization that governed Europe. Uh, the problem with that was the Russians never bought into that idea. The Russians thought that they would be uh, a player in Europe, that they would have a voice in how European security issues were being handled, and that they could object if the NATO alliance were doing things that they felt threatened their own security. That's not how things evolved. We ended up in a situation where NATO was the dominant security organization in Europe. Russia didn't have a voice in NATO decisions. Um, and Russia was on the outside looking in. And they objected to that situation from the very start. It wasn't just Putin doing this recently. Uh, Boris Yeltsin, way back in 1994, gave a speech uh, saying if NATO continued to try to do this, that Europe would be plunged in what he called a cold peace. Well, that's exactly what happened. Mm. And today, uh, the Russians aren't just sitting on the sidelines objecting. They now have the power to say, look, uh, we can prevent NATO from moving further eastward. We've been complaining for nearly 30 years. Now we have the power to make sure it doesn't happen. So the question the United States has before it, I believe, is not whether Russia should have a veto over NATO's enlargement, uh, but whether Russia exercises a de facto uh, veto of NATO enlargement on the battlefield or whether we strike some sort of diplomatic compromise at the negotiating table. That's our choice. So let's talk about the situation at the negotiating table. I guess one of the uh, positives is that at least the United States and Russia are still talking, at least the Ukrainian government and Russian governments are still talking. 
What should we, we being the United States, President Biden, Secretary Blinken, what should we be doing right now, either uh, operationally or rhetorically? If you were advising the president and the secretary of state, what would you be advising them to do? Well, first of all, we need to take this out of the headlines, out, out from in front of the television cameras and talk to the Russians seriously, quietly in private diplomatic negotiations. The more this is a public issue, um, the less able uh, each side is going to be to find a mutually acceptable compromise without losing face. Uh, There's been far too much public negotiation, far too much grandstanding on both sides uh, to to actually find a way out. Uh, The second thing I think we need to do is not focus exclusively on using sticks, exclusively on punishment and deterrence and sanctions and the threat of military force. The United States is in no position to use military force here. There's a great imbalance in conventional capabilities between Russia and the United States and NATO in Europe. We like to think of the Russians as weak, as uh, a declining power, as not able to do much militarily. That used to be the case 20, 30 years ago. It's not the case today. The Russians have an overwhelming advantage conventionally in dealing with the situation in Ukraine. And the United States can't come close to matching that right now. What we need to do is to combine firmness with accommodation. And going back to that uh, 1962 Cuban Missile Crisis, that was a situation where President Kennedy combined the threat of military force. He explicitly threatened the Soviets with attacking their missile installations in Cuba with a willingness to find a deal. And ultimately, the way out of that crisis was we agreed to do some things that the Soviets wanted us to do. Kennedy said, "Okay, I will pledge not to invade Cuba, not to try to remove the communist government there. And Kennedy also struck a secret bargain where we removed uh, Jupiter medium range um, missiles, nuclear missiles that were stationed in Italy and uh, in Turkey in return for the Russians removing their missiles from Cuba. So it wasn't just a case where we were firm and the Russians backed down, that they blinked when they came eyeball to eyeball with us, as we later said. We actually struck a bargain, and we should have. That was the way to handle it. And that's what we need to do today, to find a mutually acceptable bargain that allows each side to uh, save political face here. I love everything that you just said. And the people just tuning in, we're talking with George Beebe, vice president and director of studies at the Center for the National Interest, also the author of a wonderful book, which uh, will give you a great primer into U.S.-Russian relations. It's a short book, and it's written in terms that even laymen like me can understand. It's called The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral into Catastrophe. What you just said is refreshingly free of hyperbole. It's refreshingly fact-based. It's refreshingly free of ideology. And unfortunately, it's exactly the kind of thing that we seem to not be hearing from both Democrats and Republicans in Washington these days. For the most part, both the Democrats and Republicans seem to be racing to see who could be using a bigger, stronger stick uh, uh, towards Russia. Given the fact that that's the case, 
case that we have, uh, you know, a, a you know, a foreign policy establishment that has so far only shown a willingness to use sticks. Um, what do you think are the best and worst case scenarios at this point as it relates to this present situation? Well, the best case scenario is we find some sort of mutually acceptable compromise that doesn't appear to be the track that we're on right now. However, uh, we seem to be on a track that uh, will wind up in some sort of Russian military action uh, in Ukraine. Now, if that happens, there are all kinds of bad things that could flow from that. Um, One of them uh, is that we wind up in a, a permanent division of Ukraine, a very unstable redivision of Europe between uh, the collective West, the United States and, and its uh, NATO allies on the one hand, and Russia and uh, its partners on the other. Um, that's, I think, a disaster for Europe, a disaster for the Ukrainian people themselves, and a disaster for, for U.S. security, because uh, we will have to rearm uh, NATO in Europe to deal with that division. Um, it, it will be tense. It will require a lot of resources and, and focus. And this will occur during a period when our biggest challenge in the world geostrategically is China. And what we will have done is greatly handicap our ability to marshal our resources to deal with China We will have driven Russia into China's arms, reinforced what is becoming a de facto entente between Russia and China, and really handicapped our ability to deal with this challenge. Uh, Russia and China together are far more formidable, far more difficult for us to deal with than a situation where we've reached some sort of understanding with the Russians that will allow the Russians to be much more of of an independent player, not allied with the United States or with China, um, which complicates China's strategic outlook. Now, the very worst situation, one that I wrote about in the book, is that this confrontation with Russia spirals into a direct military confrontation between the United States and Russia that could quite precariously uh, escalate to nuclear levels. Mm. Now, neither Russia nor the United States wants that to happen. Obviously, that would be a disaster. But because of cyber warfare, because of the, the mixing of conventional and nuclear command and control issues, we could get into that escalation scenario if we're not extremely careful here just because of, of the, the way things are interconnected today in, in ways that they weren't back in the Cold War days. So this is a very precarious situation. Oh, that, that it is. Now, keeping in mind what you said a couple of minutes ago that you'd like to see an approach that wasn't all sticks – Uh, Is one of the sticks that the president has been using, the threat of greater sanctions, is that an appropriate stick? I mean, it seems to me that we've been sanctioning Russia a great deal since the annexation of Crimea, and these sanctions don't seem to be doing very much to change Russian behavior. Is it appropriate for the president and Secretary Blinken to be continuing to threaten sanctions? Well, I think it is if that is coupled to a broader negotiating strategy that is aimed at incentivizing a deal, a compromise here. If you think that sanctions by themselves will compel the Russians to back off, 
unless they're coupled to a carrot, I think I think you're wrong. Um, this is an existential issue for the Russians. They think their survival is at stake in Ukraine. We did the same thing uh, with J- Imperial Japan prior to World War II. We thought we could impose on Imperial Japan such draconian sanctions, uh, cutting them off essentially from being able to to get access to oil and, and other strategic resources that were vital to Japan's survival. We thought that that would compel the Japanese to back off of their expansionism in Asia. But what we misread was that the, the Japanese didn't think their expansion in Asia was discretionary. Um, they thought that they absolutely had to secure Japan against China, the Soviet Union, the United States. So when we squeezed them that hard, they felt they had no choice but to attack us in order to preserve their own existence. That's where I think the Russians are with Ukraine right now. If we think that we can squeeze them into submission, I think we're very wrong. That kind of an approach is more than likely going to be a trigger, not a deterrent to what the Russians are doing. It's fine if we're saying, hey, look, we're giving you an option, either these sanctions or, hey, let's make a deal. In that kind of scenario, I think that they're appropriate, but not if we think by themselves that they're going to squeeze the Russians into uh, backing down in Ukraine. You know, I love the comp- uh, the comparison to Japan prior to World War II. The only other person that I've heard raise that comparison is actually the owner of our radio station, John Katsimatidis, who's an oil man, who is uh, uh, very big in the oil business. And he's raised exactly the same specter and said exactly the same thing in terms of uh, Japan being a cautionary tale for some of the same same reasons. In terms of uh, one of the policies that we've seen under both the Biden and Trump administration, we, the American taxpayers and the American government, have been providing military aid to Ukraine, lethal military aid. Uh, How effective has that been, this policy under both Trump and Biden, of giving lethal military aid to the Ukrainian government to combat Ukrainian separatists and perhaps the Russian army? Well, um, this by itself is not going to change the balance of military forces between Ukraine and Russia. Um, the Ukrainian military is far outmatched when dealing with the Russian military. They can't bring to bear the kind of ground combat forces, the kind of air power, the kind of rocket and artillery power that the uh, the Russian military can. And uh, Javelin anti-tank missiles and, and Stinger anti-aircraft uh, missiles aren't going to come close to changing that imbalance. Um, and Anything that the United States could give to Ukraine right now would take a long time for the Ukrainian military to absorb it, to absorb it, uh, to learn how to use it effectively on the battlefield. Uh, essentially, this is symbolic. Um, so I, I don't think this is going to matter at all other than to uh, further trigger the Russians into acting on the battlefield now 
rather than waiting for two years when the Ukrainians might be better able to resist some sort of invasion. I I, I mean, it makes absolutely no sense. It's almost the equivalent of smacking a pit bull in the face. That's not going to make the difference between the pit bull not biting you or not. It's just going to make make the pit bull angrier. George, I uh, could talk with you for hours. Whenever we speak, I feel as if I've gotten a collegiate education in foreign policy. Thank you for the great work that you're doing in terms of furthering understanding of uh, Russia-U.S. relations, and uh, I appreciate you getting up so early for us. Thanks, Craig. My Uh, pleasure. George Beebe, check out his book, The Russia Trap, How Our Shadow War with Russia Could Spiral Into Catastrophe. It's an absolute must-read. How he ever worked for Dick Cheney is something I will never understand, but I don't have to understand it. Uh, It's a great book, nonetheless, irrespective of who he worked for. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.